A sign-up for child care will come around in just a minute. Make sure you get on the list. Just kidding. Um, hey, so if you have a Bible or a smartphone or some device, you'll be looking at the, the text of Scripture with us this morning. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 8. I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9. Um, if you haven't been with us before or for very long, kind of our, our, our tendency here is just to preach through books of Scripture. We just look at them chapter by chapter, week after week, um, until we've looked at the totality of the book. And we do that for a couple reasons. We do it... One is it, it forces us to preach all of God's Word. Um, we don't get to skip passages that we don't uh, understand as clearly or that are a little more difficult. It also, though, allows if, if your sin, something you're struggling with, pops up in the text, you know the Spirit is pursuing you, right? Not that you got ratted out to the pastor, right? And so we don't want to jump around passage to passage. We just want to kind of work our way through um, books of Scripture. We try to alternate between different genres in the Old Testament and the New Testament so that we can see all of God's Word. Um, and, and our desire here is also um, is to keep things simple. It, it, the reason we, we do a couple songs and then the preaching is one, we don't want to view worship as simply something that we're gearing ourselves up to get emotional enough so that we can make it through a sermon. We believe God most clearly, most often speaks through His Word. And so we save a bulk of our singing, our, through our worship through song, for after the sermon um, so that we can worship in response to what we trust God is going to reveal and show us this morning and in every week. Um, and so our desire would be for you to leave this morning knowing you had met with God um, because he's spoken clearly through his spirit and through his word. Um, not that it was like, hey, that was entertaining, um, and I'm not sure if I met with, with the king of the universe or not. And so our desire would be for you to hear from Jesus. Um, so we're in Hebrews 9. Hebrews is a letter written in the first century, most likely sometime right before 70 AD. Um, it was written by an unknown author to a, a church of former Jews who are now Christians who are struggling with whether or not they want to go back into Judaism. And so they're asking this question, they're struggling, there's some persecution, some suffering that's coming. And, and so they're, they're beginning to say, hey, Judaism is legal, Christianity isn't, maybe life would be easier if we left Christianity behind. And so the author is looking to, to encourage them, to help them to stand strong and to hold fast in their faith. And if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, we have seen a lot of talk of the priesthood, of Jesus being our high priest. There's been a lot of conversation. And you're going to see it's going to continue this morning in chapter 9. Um, I actually had multiple people say, hey, are you going to skip chapter 9? Just it's like, kind of like I'm repeat here a little bit, right? And so I think that it's important for us to ask the question then this morning, is what effect does familiarity or redundancy maybe have on us, right? Like when we're super familiar with something, what, what effect does it have? And so I was thinking back to when I first got to start giving some opportunities to teach Sunday school, when I was like um, 18, 19, 20 years old. And I had sat through a lot of Sunday school at that point. Some really good, some less than, than good. And there were some habits that I had seen teachers do that I knew, hey, whenever I get the chance to teach, I don't want to do those things, right? I want to really lean on the scriptures. I really want to trust those things. And then the first time I got to teach, and it's not going well, 
And you know what I, what I leaned to was, what was I familiar with, right? And I start, like, throwing all this stuff that I was, like, opposed to, like, intellectually. To, and try, I'm trying to find something that works. And I'm like, oh, this is why these Sunday school teachers are always doing this. And I'm just, like, throwing stuff against the wall, hoping something will work. Because I was, I was so familiar with it, even though it wasn't really what I wanted to do. If I think back to our very first service eight and a half years ago at, of Redeemer, where we were meeting in a living room... Um, of someone's home and that first morning we're walking in and so there's going to be about 20 of us gather for the first redeemer service and i've told this story a lot but like as we were walking as i was walking through the driveway i almost had like a panic attack where i'm like oh no this doesn't look like church it doesn't smell like church it doesn't seem like church there is nothing churchy about this like people are pushing couches out of the way to set up chairs we're in a living room there's nothing that gives it that church feel And even though that was our heart's desire was to strip away all the unnecessary tradition and and go just back to scripture. And what does it look like to be a church? That's what we've been praying for, longing for. That in that moment, what my heart wanted to run back to was something familiar, something that I knew. And so I wanted to throw some church on it. Right. And the spirit stopped me, was gracious to stop me and to say, no, 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 you have me. I have you where I want you. Like I have to show up or you're you're going to be seen as a fraud. And he showed up, and he's been gracious to continue to show up. But I think we have to be honest that there is a tendency for us to disengage when something feels too familiar, or we maybe go back to things that we don't want to go back to, right? And so the, the, the question at hand for the Hebrews, right, was do I leave Christianity to go back to the familiar thing, which is Judaism? And the author is saying, if you do that, you're going to miss Jesus entirely, but for some of us this morning, it's, it's, it's not religion that we're familiar with. It's, it's sin patterns or it's addictions or it's different thought processes. It's things that we don't even want to go back to it, but it feels known. It feels comfortable. It feels easy. And so it's easy to step back into it, right? Because it's familiar. It's why when we show up on Easter or Christmas or when you hear, hey, it's going to be a gospel message this morning that if you've been in church, if you're familiar with that, that you can tend to disengage and your ears turn off and your minds turn off and your hearts turn off. Because you're like, I think I've got that message down. I know why he came at Easter. I know why he died at Easter. I know why he came at Christmas. And so I think we have to wrestle this morning for those who've been sitting in Hebrews with us that there could be a tendency for us to go, more priesthood stuff? I think I'm good. But are we going to lean in and wrestle with it? Are we going to trust that God has given us this substantial amount of information for a reason? There's something for us not to take for granted this morning. And so let's pick up in verse 1 of chapter 9. The author continues, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence It's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations have thus been made. The priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself 
and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it's not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and the people, all the people saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to make himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. All right, I know that was a lot. But what's going on here is this, is that that the author is not looking to, to degrade or to like downplay Judaism here. He's not looking to say, hey, like, let's, let's hold it down a little bit so that we can see how much better Christianity is. He's saying, look, this, was, this covenant of Judaism was set in place, and I'm not looking to disparage it. It had splendor. And so he goes through and he just starts describing what it looked like and what the process was. Because he says, I want you to see it in its glory. I want you to see that there was logic and there was planning. And it was given by God and it was covered in gold and there was splendor. But Jesus is better. Right? Like he wants you to see it and then to see that Jesus, the new, is better. Now remember, one of the most important things we can know about the Old Testament is this, is that so much of what's happening in the Old Testament are what we could call types or shadows. 
It was something that was seen in part. And that when Jesus comes, we can see it more clearly. It's like, oh, I see the distinction. I see what it was trying to do. And the priestly system was a type. It was a shadow of how God was going to rescue his people. How he was going to make us right with him. How he was going to take us from being enemies to being sons and daughters of God. And so he begins to describe the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was this structure that they could pick up and move with the people of God, the people of Israel. And it, was, it had this outer courtyard of, of, of coverings, right? And then as you stepped in, that's where a lot of the priestly work would have been done, where there would have been sacrifices. And within this outer courtyard, there were two buildings that were connected. And in the first was the holy place. And then there was a veil that would separate the most holy place. And so he's saying there was, in that first place, there's work that would be done regularly by the priest. But in the most holy place, someone went once, one time a year. One person went once, one, right, one time a year. And so what they're showing was that there was access to God, that they knew that God was among them, that he was with them, but it was restricted and it was limited. That he was close, but we couldn't quite get to him. That we had this orderly, sacrificial system But only one man would go in once a year and he would have to take a blood offering and he would leave quickly. Right? He's showing that there was a distinction that we couldn't quite get to God and yet we want to have access to him. So Moses was given the description of the tabernacle. He saw it and it was given to him on Mount Sinai so that he could lay it out for the people. This was given by God. And there was a veil, right? A visible sign of separation between the holy place and the most holy place. And so he's saying, look, you're familiar with this. You know this. You're comfortable with it. There could be a tendency to want to go back to it. Because at this point, they don't have the tabernacle any longer. They do have the temple, which is set up in in a very similar but more permanent fashion. What what they don't know is that by 70 AD, the temple is going to be destroyed. And it has yet to be rebuilt. Right? And Jesus told them it would be destroyed because he was telling them that I'm going to be the temple in which you're going to gain access to God. It won't be through that temple. It'll be through me, my body, which is the temple that I've come to tabernacle to dwell among you in your midst. And in this structure, he starts talking about the Ark of the Covenant. He says in it, there were three things. One of them was the tablets, right? The law that was given. Right, This reminder of the law, of God giving it to them, of making them his people and he was their God. It was a covenant. A second thing that was in there was manna, right, which was the food that the Israelites ate in the wilderness as they wandered for 40 years. It was a reminder of God's provision, that he has led them out and rescued them. And the third thing is one that maybe is a little less familiar. It was Aaron's staff that was budded. And, and so what happened, if we you go back to Numbers 17, there was a rebellion amongst the people of Israel. Korah led a rebellion. And what he said was, hey, uh, Moses, Aaron, y'all are taking all the leadership, all the good stuff for yourself, and we're all as good as you are. So we want what you have. And so God tells them, hey, have the head of each of the 12 tribes lay a staff on the ground. Write, Write their name on it. And the next morning when they go back, the 12 staffs are there except Moses, or sorry, Aaron's staff has budded and it's growing like live things, like put, producing almonds and, and producing flowers. And it was God's 
way of saying, I have intervened. And Aaron and his line will be my priest. I have said this and you're going to do it. And right in the, and he's like, and it's so that the rebels will know that God has intervened. And so in the Ark of the Covenant, they have the reminder of the law, the covenant with God, the reminder of God's provision and manna, and then the reminder of God's intervention through Aaron's staff. And all of these things, right, would draw their attention that they needed God, but they couldn't quite get to him, right? Because the the sacrificial system, right, wasn't sufficient to take away this internal issue, this stain that we have. It was meant to ceremonially, like, cleanse them, to externally cleanse them. It was temporary, but you were still stained internally, right? So you would do these things, and then you'd have to come back and do them again, and come back and do them again, and come back and do them again. And for even the nation, they would do it on an annual basis. And so this morning, here's the question that we need to begin to wrestle with, is how have you sought to remove the stain that you know is on your own spirit, on your own soul, right? Because we know it's there. Right? Whether you pretend like it's not, or whether you know very clearly that it is, you know that you're not just in need of a shower. That you have been stained by sin. And so for some of us, we attempt to be really moral. Right? We just want to be a good person. You hear that, converse, that, like that language all the time. I just want to be a good person. Right? And, and yet they create kind of their own standard of what good is. Others who try to just be super religious... Maybe you feel like you need to pay, right? And so any suffering that comes, you just kind of like, yeah, I deserve it. I need to be punished, right? And you want to hurt. You want to feel things because you feel like maybe it's paying for your sin. Maybe you avoid these big questions, right? Maybe you try to just avoid the big sins so that you'll look outwardly clean. Right? Or maybe you have decided, I can't do any of that anyway. It's, it's not enough. The stain is there and nothing affects it. And so I'm going to eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow I'll die anyway. And you've just poured yourself into like licentious freedom of behavior, looking to numb yourself and to forget that there's a stain at all. Right? Like that's the question that the Hebrews are wrestling with. That's the question that we are wrestling with this morning of how do we get to God if we are stained and if he is holy? If we're not holy and he is, how do we get to him? And so they would have these places like the tabernacle and eventually the temple. And they would have these ceremonies that would allow them to temporarily, ceremonially kind of feel cleansed. And yet their stain was still in effect. And it's a reason that even today that we like kind of big, like religious, sacred moments or places or ceremonies. Because it makes us feel like we're maybe we're chipping away at it a little bit. And yet you walk into this building and you're like, it's pretty simple. It doesn't feel very sacred, right? And we don't have a sacrificial system and there's not an altar. Like, why do we not go back to those things? Why don't we have a place to revel in or to, to, to show reverence in? And it's because Jesus is going to be our entrance, right? That it's not a place. It's not a building. It's not a temple. Jesus is going to be our temple. He's going to be our entrance back to the Father, And yet, even today, you will see that there are people who want to put the laws and the restrictions and the ceremonies of Judaism back on themselves. Paul dealt with it in his day, right? He called them Judaizers, those who have seen, right, the beauty and the freedom of Christianity and then want to put it back on because it feels familiar. 
And if we're not careful, we like to go back to things and say, let's just put some laws and some regulations and some rules and some ceremonies on because then I feel like I'm doing something. And maybe I'm making some ground with God because it feels familiar. And it's easier to have lists of do's and don'ts and check boxes than it is to follow the Spirit. Right? Do we go back to what's familiar? And so what the author here in, in chapter 9 is going to say is, but, right, that Jesus is going to mediate a different covenant. Look at verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, so he's not talking about the physical tabernacle anymore. That is not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of bloods of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And so what he's saying is this, is that we, right, by Jesus' own blood in verse 12, and in verse 14, without blemish, it means his life was sinless and perfect, and ours is stained and his wasn't. That because he had this unblemished life, That he's then able to enter into the cross, into sacrifice, into death by his own blood to appease and to satisfy the wrath of God. So he walks boldly into the holy of holies. And then he doesn't leave it. He sits down. Because the work has been accomplished. It's been done. And he is at the right hand of the Father because he has done what the priestly system and the sacrifices could not do. What your religious efforts cannot do. Right, is he satisfies the anger of God towards sin. And he does it, look at verse 14, to purify us, to take that stain away. In verse 15, it says this. Um, Therefore, he is the mediator. He's the go-between, right, of a stained people and a holy God of a new covenant. So that those who are called, it's not all, but those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed. So he's saying his death redeems us because it pays for our sins and makes a stained people no longer stained so that we can stand before a holy God. Which the priestly system was not ever going to accomplish, but Jesus does. So Carmen had a a really good friend. Let me see if this maybe helps clarify this a little bit. Um, That we went to college with who ended up working at the Pentagon. So one year, we go up before we had kids to visit her in Washington, D.C., and she takes us to this heavily guarded, very secure, like, national building. And there is this huge process for us to get in, right? And they're putting name tags on us, like they're marking us as visitors, as guests, like that we don't, like, everything that's set up to say, you don't belong here, right? And we want you to feel very uncomfortable that you are here, Right? Because don't get, any, don't get any wise ideas. Right? And so we're over here like having this process. Like with, I mean, like they're not just putting like a little paper, like you're a substitute teacher badge. Like they're making a badge. Right? Like, I mean, it's, it's like this legit moment. And then she starts walking through the halls like she owns the place. Because she belonged there. She worked there. It was her place. And so she, and like we're walking around lost and confused and a little concerned And she's walking around confidently. Right? Because she belonged in this place. And she was taking us where we were supposed to be. Y'all, Jesus steps in and says, hey, you don't belong. 
unless you have me. And if you have me, then you follow me. You take my hand and I'm going to take you back to the Father. To a place of access that you cannot earn, that you do not deserve, that you can't begin to accomplish on your own. But you get to come in with bold confidence as a son, as a daughter of the king. Because I have stood and paid what you could not pay and said you belong. And your stain has been washed away. And you have been given my holy perfection. Right? It's not so when Jesus, sorry, when the father looks at you, he sees Jesus' perfection covering you. Right? And so now you get to walk in, not because you belong, but because Jesus did. And he says, you're mine. Right? That's, that's what the, the imagery is trying to go on here of like a place that you couldn't get to. Jesus says now is yours. So the veil is ripped upon his death. The curtain is broken. And he says, now come on in. But we have to see the significance of what's going on here. That we have an enemy. It's death. Right? There's a reason that we mourn at funerals. There's a reason that we fear sickness and disease. There's a reason we fear tragedy and death. Because we know it separates us and we know we carry a stain. Right? Scripture will say that we are the enemies of God. All of us have been the enemy of God. That His wrath is going to be poured out upon sin because He is holy. Verse 27. And just as it is appointed for a man to die once and after that comes judgment. There is something in our soul that says we know this is true. Right? That says when we die, we're separated. And when we die, I'm not sure that I can stand. Right? I'm not sure that I can stand before God. That judgment is coming for us. And if we look at Mark 7, Jesus talks a little bit about what has stained us and what defiles us. I want you to listen. This is Mark 7. Verse 15, Jesus is talking. He says, there is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. But it's the things that come out of a person are what defile him. So he's like, the things that mark you or make you dirty on the outside, he's like, that's not what defiles you. It's what's coming out of you that defiles you. He continues. Look down in verse 21. From within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, Coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within and they defile a person. What Jesus is doing is here is he's saying, I'm going to give a list, like not an all inclusive list, but a list of some of the things that you know have stained you, that have defiled you, that keep you from standing before a holy God. And so you look at that list and there are some of those things on there. You're like, I don't struggle with that. And that you're others that you go, oh, yeah, that's me. And he's saying it comes from within and it has defiled you. There's a reason that in, in, as we think about, maybe if you're a poetry fan like Edgar Allan Poe, right? And the telltale heart, right? Is, is the guilt makes them crazy, right? That we can imagine standing in the shower after doing something and wanting to scrub off this emotion this, this thing, and we, we turn the shower on hot, and we're scrubbing, going, there's something in me, and I want it out. And we know it won't because it has stained us and it has marked our soul. And no matter what we do on the outside, it's in us. Right? That is what Hebrews is trying to say, is we have this thing, and it is going to keep us from the Father unless we find, right, a way to satisfy Him. And what religion will remind us over and over again is we can't satisfy Him. 
But Jesus can. And not only can Jesus, he has. Right? That the gospel, the good news is this. Is that God, seeing our weakness and our inability to rescue ourselves, sent his son, Jesus, to live the life that we could not live. Right? The unblemished life. To die the death that we deserved for our stain and our sin. And then he beat Satan and sin and death and lives today. We need all three. If Jesus doesn't live an unblemished life, then he's not a worthy sacrifice. If he lives an unblemished life and then does not sacrifice himself for you, we still stand guilty and we will pay for our sin. And if he doesn't, if he's not resurrected from the dead, then he's not who he claimed to be. He's not God. And so the promises are null and void. And yet he's all three. An unblemished life in place of ours. His death instead of ours. And then he lets us know that he is who he said he was because he's living today. And it's why now the author is going to say this over and over again. If you look through every chapter so far of Hebrews, there's some variation of don't neglect, don't drift, don't forget Lean into, wrestle, because we are prone to drift and to move and to wander and to forget into what? What is familiar. Away from the good news of the gospel and back into religious activity. Back into my own effort. Back into my own sin. Back into Judaism for those here in Hebrews. There is only one way, right? And we have been called by Him to know Him. So pay attention. Don't neglect these things. It is the gospel, the good news, that will continue to bear fruit in your life. What we are not saying as Christians that we are to do is it's not that your religious activities have now been given a booster shot from the cross. And so now you're able to go do all these things to please God and to show Him that it's a good thing He saved you because you're a good asset to His team. Right? It's not a way of saying, hey, I wanted to show you that it was good that you saved me because look how good I've done. He rescues those who had no hope. And then by his grace, by his kindness, by his goodness, he begins to allow us to image and to look like the Father, to look like Jesus as we walk in obedience. Because we're following him. We're holding his hand as he's leading us through life, saying, no, no, not that, this. No, no, not that, this. Look like me. Talk like me, act like me, look like me. And it's his grace that lets us do any of that. Anyway, it is the grace of God producing fruit in our life, not our religious efforts. And so, here's where we don't want to drift this morning. Right? As we want to lean into and cling to something this morning, it is this. It is that we needed an internal, like, sorry, an internal an internal cleansing. So that's why he says the law now is not just written on tablets that are sitting in an Ark of the Covenant in the holy place, the most holy place. He says it's been written on your heart. It's been stamped on you so that you will hate sin, so that you will long for the Father, that you'll trust Him and treasure Him and follow Him, that you'll know Him. That's why in 1 John 1, he says, if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
Because what we're saying is we trust that it's not my effort that is going to make me right and clean before you, but it's my confession, my trust that it was your life, your death, and your resurrection that makes me stand before the Father. And so if I confess my sin where I haven't trusted you, where I've done my own thing, that you'll cleanse me, right? You'll unstain me from my unrighteousness. Because of what you've done, we're saying, I trust you, Jesus, that you've done what I could not do. And then practically, it means we don't have to fear death. Because the death of death was when Jesus was crucified. Our enemy was destroyed. Our last enemy was destroyed. We've been put at peace with God. And death no longer is a place of judgment, of fear, of turmoil, of separation. It is us walking into salvation seeing with our own eyes in fullness what we have believed in faith. And so we don't have to fear it any longer. We can look at it with hope and joy because it is us walking into forever with our King. It means that we have peace now with God and we have purpose in our life, right? To know Him and to make Him known, to please Him and to follow Him, to honor Him. So church, what we don't want to do is be so familiar that we miss the need. That your sin is horrendous. And you are far worse than you think you are. It is far more staining than you think it is. It is far more deep and damning than you think it is. You are not as good as you think you are. Right? And you're like, that doesn't sound lovely. That is, that is the truth, though. And that's why when we look at Old Testament prophets like Amos, that we see God's hatred towards sin, that we need to see that there's a significant place where we are his enemy. It's not just a joke. And it's why death feels horrendous, because it's the effect of sin. But now, in Christ, right, the thought of that you are not fearing punishment or judgment any longer, but that you have been made a son or a daughter of the king, if you see the, the, the depth of which you were and that Jesus has now made you whole, how does he not loom large and worthy of worship? That he is significant and huge because he has accomplished what you cannot do through a lifetime of striving. He has rescued you. He has rescued you. And, it, and the magnitude of what's been received is that it's not that one guy in Pampa who gets to walk into the church once a year to offer a sacrifice so that we don't all get destroyed It's that you have access. You get to boldly and confidently pursue the king, the creator, the rescuer. Because the veil's been torn. And Jesus says you now belong as a son or a daughter of the king. And so what it means then is this. Is that we don't fear Amos happening to us any longer. Because we have access. But if you have not trusted Jesus, if you are still working in your efforts and your attempts at being religious or your attempts of just ignoring all of this, then you still stand knowing that judgment will come when you die. Because you will either stand before God and be judged in your sin and in your separation or you will stand covered by the blood of Jesus. Those are the only two places. And so that's why he ends this chapter by saying, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, He will appear a second time. There will be a day where Jesus will split the sky, step back into human history, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Those who are anticipating my king is coming for me and he's going to have me forever because I'm secure in his hand will bow a knee and worship. Or you will die before that comes and you will walk into your salvation. 
Others, though, who do not trust that Jesus has rescued them, who do not trust what He's done, who have not been called by Him, will be judged upon death, or when Jesus splits the sky, they'll know that they stand still an enemy, and they will bow a knee in fear. Right? And so the author here is ending it, to the, talking to the church, saying, don't return to the things that are familiar. Stay connected to Jesus. He is the author, the perfecter, and the finisher of our faith. So church, this morning my prayer is this, is that our hearts would be stirred. That you would see Jesus as big. That, that Hebrews 9 wouldn't just feel familiar and redundant. We can take it for granted. But that we would see it as significant and big because Jesus would loom large. Because of the magnitude of which he saved us from. We would treasure him in this morning. That we would want to sing. And that we would want to live lives that please and honor and glorify him. Not to earn our salvation, but because he has rescued us. Let's pray. Jesus, you are faithful in your word to call us, to to woo us, to reveal yourself to us. And so, Lord, we know the truth is, is that we can look at Scripture and be numbed to it. We can be look at Scripture and be blinded to your goodness and your mercy and your kindness upon us. So, Father, we just ask that you would let the scales fall from our eyes, that we would see you as big, that we would see you as our rescuer, and that it would not feel like a small thing, but a big thing. Father, if we feel marked and stained by sin this morning, would we know that forgiveness is in your hands and that you can internally cleanse us? So for those who know they're marked by sin this morning, would you call them? Would you begin to speak to them and say, I know you, I see you, I love you, and I've done what you can't do? And would they trust that? For those of us who do know you, who have been drifting, God, would this snap our attention back into what you've done? 